Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us on the podcast we call Space Nuts. That's because we're nuts about space the space between our ears. But we're also nuts about the space up and around us and, uh, you know, it goes off into infinity. And uh, joining us, as always, from the Australian Astronomical Observatory is Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? I am quite well, thanks. You've got less space between your ears than I have. I, <laughs> I, was, just, I, I was just thinking, you know, putting those two sentiments together probably means that we both have an, in, an infinity of empty space between our ears. Yes, but... It's the, a bit the, like a TARDIS. The challenge, the challenge is to fill that space, and that's yeah. what we try to do every week. Now, today yeah, we're going to be looking at that asteroid again. This is the exo-asteroid that sort of popped up uh, recently that we know is not of our own solar system. It's come from somewhere else. We're not exactly sure where. Uh, but things have, uh, have developed rather quickly, which is quite unusual in terms of uh, giving it a name. Uh, we're going to look at an astroblem. I don't know exactly what an astroblem is, but um, we'll find out. And... Pigs in space. Well, not pigs, but all sorts of animals in space. We've just uh, celebrated, if you want to use that term, I think it's the 70th anniversary of the launch of the first living creature into space, and um, it was a, a Siberian husky named Laker. Uh, so uh, we, yeah, Fred's going to correct me, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, what we celebrated, you're right, it's, it's at least 70 years ago since we've been launching animals into space. But the critical thing about uh, Laika uh, is that uh, this was the first living creature put into orbit. Ah. And it, it actually was 60 years ago, 60 years ago, a few days ago. See, <laughs> so there you go. Mathematics <laughs> wasn't my strong point, but we'll get no, to, it's okay. we'll get no, to it's, that. It's good enough. It's good enough. That's yeah, all right. Fair enough. Let's uh, talk about this... Um, um, exo asteroid. This this fascinates me, and uh, it fascinates a lot of people, especially astronomers who got very excited about it when it was discovered uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago. This thing came into our solar system, did a bit of a slingshot, and is headed off to who knows where. But it's it's not of our solar system, and this is the first time one of these has ever been detected. Indeed, that's right. Uh, so, so it is, as you said, it's an exoasteroid. It's a great name for it. Um, uh, uh, so what has, what has, um, I, I guess, prompted this story is uh, uh, there's, a, there's a group within the USA uh, which uh, is actually specialises in basically delineating and uh, enumerating and cataloguing all the asteroids, and they use the old name for asteroids. They call them minor planets. Uh, minor planets is what we called asteroids. I guess, uh, I mean, I mean the, the word asteroid was in, in currency, but minor planet was a much more formal name. Asteroid was always thought to be pretty informal. Yeah. Uh, so um, my 
MSC thesis is actually titled Practical Techniques for the Determination of Minor Planet Orbits, because that's what I did. <laughs> wow. Uh, that goes back I don't even know what years. that means. It uh, just, just means I wrote some computer programs uh, with these new new devices called computers, as wow. they were then, yeah. uh, to sort out um, how you how you determine asteroid orbits. Uh, and it's because of that um, long-standing interest in, in asteroids and all things to do with minor planets that I'm on the mailing list for the Minor Planet Electronic Circulars. And I get uh, sometimes uh, 30 or 40 of them in a day. Every day there are new ones. And they're reporting on... Uh, the orbits of, of asteroids, which are which are being observed all around the world, but once in a while something really interesting comes along, and this one uh, is ha ha headlined "Editorial Notice," and I always take notice of editorial notices because they're a bit different from the usual tables of just in, in um, you know interminable lists of numbers, which are these electronic circulars normally are, mm. and this one is headed "New Designation Scheme for Interstellar Objects," and it goes back exactly to what we were talking about last week the um, the uh, basically the interstellar asteroid uh, which was given a preliminary uh, designation of a 217 u1 uh, and I'll explain why why that was done in a minute but um, the bottom line here is that um, there has been some email exchanges between the general secretary of the International Astronomical Union uh, the president of the Division F of the International Astronomical Union, co-chairs of International Astronomical Union working groups on small body nomenclature, and the Minor Planet Centre itself, where these um, these circulars come from, have discussed the issue of what you do about naming things that do not belong to our solar system, but whiz through them from time to time. This is the first one we've recorded that's done that. This object zoomed through the solar system, didn't stop, of course. It uh, its orbit was its velocity was far too fast to, to uh, let it be captured by the sun. It zoomed in on a on a, on a what was called a hyperbolic trajectory and zoomed out on a hyperbolic trajectory and it's now heading for the constellation of Pegasus and almost certainly will never ever be seen again. Um, so what do you do about naming things like this? Well, the, the, urgent, uh, the urgency of the discovery led the group who discovered it, which are based at the PanStars telescope in Hawaii, basically to adapt the nomenclature that we use for newly discovered asteroids. Um, and that uh, involves, uh, first of all, a year, and that's why this thing's called A217. The A just stands for asteroid, mm -hmm. A217. But the U1 bit um, is because uh, whenever an asteroid is discovered, it has a prefix letter which uh, represents the half month in which the discovery was made. So what they do is they divide the year into 24 half months and give each one a letter. And U is the letter for the first half of November. And of course, that's when it was discovered. Uh, U1 this this is the sounds first way too complicated to be normal. It's what it's the normal it's the normal um, routine for asteroids. Uh, so, and, and I know it sounds bizarre. And then there's a number uh, which is, in this case, one because it's the only one that's been discovered of its kind in the second half of November. Uh, sorry, first half of November. Hmm. Yeah, that that um, that U designation it is a bit weird. It, it goes back. It probably goes back. 70 or 80 years i should check on the history of all this but i mean th this was the scheme that was in use when i was working on asteroids and that literally was 50 years ago well the question uh, that comes straight to my mind is why divide the year into half months why not just stick with the months we've got or is there is there some logical reason for that 
it's just so that you don't end up with too big a number. Uh, you know, if you if you discover a thousand in a month, then uh -huh. the half months you might have five hundred in each. It just it just makes it a little bit easier. And I, I suspect uh, it was a bit more pragmatic than that, probably Andrew, because there's twenty six letters in the alphabet, and somebody thought, oh well, we let's could use them all. We can fit twenty. Yeah, let's use them all. Fit fit in the. The, the half months. So it's a half month. So that's the, the that is the designation that it was given really on the fly when this thing was discovered. Um, so what they are going to do uh, for the temporary designations of anything else that comes in from interstellar space uh, is to follow the same basically follow the same nomenclature. So if another one came in this week, it would be A2 2017 U2. Um, but then you've got a, that, so that's the temporary designation given to something before its orbit is firmly analyzed. And um, that's very much the case with asteroids. They get these temporary designations. And then once the orbit is well known and well understood and there's all the decimal places that you want it's given a name uh, which is um, chosen by the discoverer of the asteroid uh, so you know um, in fact Rob McNaught one of the most prolific Australian discoverers discoverers of asteroids he named uh, them a lot of them well one was Siding Spring I think uh, oh actually no that was discovered by somebody else but you get the idea yeah. that you can give the name to it if you discover it hmm. he did call one of them Fred Watson which was very nice I'm oh. delighted to have that so he was only That's joking a... last week about naming one of them Fred Fredoid <laughs> it's uh, Fredoid yeah it's um Asteroid, I, I can't remember the number, 5691, five, I think it is, uh, in, in, in the catalogue, but is, is also called Fred Watson. Anyway, the, <laughs> coming back to the, th the thrust of the matter, um, the, so what has now happened is that an object, the, 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 the permanent designation for an object that whizzes through the solar system is going to have an I attached to it. And I stands for interstellar. Ah. And so this one uh, is called 1I because it's the first interstellar object. I don't know whether we'll have a 2I soon. I bet we do because these things, once you've found one, you tend to find a lot. Yes. But it's also know what you're now. For, yeah. that, that's right, exactly. It also now has a name um, because the. The team that discovered it at the Pan-STARRS Observatory in uh, Haleakala in, on the island of Maui in Hawaii has chosen a name for it which is of Hawaiian origin. Not surprising. Uh, and it, it, in fact, their summary is it's of Hawaiian origin and reflects the way this object is like a scout or messenger sent from the distant past to reach out to us. So its name is uh, Umuamua. And oh. the OU, uh, OU means reach out and Mua and the second mua makes it emphatic because that's how they do it in the Hawaiian language. Uh, it means the first or in advance of. So umua mua means the, the first uh, scout reaching out to us. It's a great name. It's, it's fabulous. Lovely. Yeah, good thinking yeah. just for once. Uh, very, um, very much. Yeah, that's right. But very much along the line. These, of, these uh, half tradition. month designations. Yes. <laughs> have still got me, you know, a little confused. And it must be really difficult for uh, Hawaiians because they only have 12 letters in their alphabet. <laughs> that is true. There are missing letters. That's right. Yeah. Um, so so the working language of astronomy is English and we have 26 letters. Fair enough. Uh, that, that's why it's done. Yeah. But um, just to stress again, that uh, half month thing is actually the temporary designation. It's what you designate something immediately after you've found it. Because really the only thing you know about it with certain at that time is the 
is when it was discovered. Uh, you, you, you know it's an asteroid probably or whatever, but you don't know its orbit well enough to give it a permanent designation. So that is the temporary designation. But the permanent des designation is is it a number like 5691 and a name like Fred Watson for the you know for, for an asteroid that's been permanently put in the in the register. So we now have the situation where this interstellar interloper has a permanent name and a number. It is called One uh, I Umuamura. That's its formal name, as it will always be known by. Fantastic. And I think we just broke the world record for telling a story when all <laughs> we really needed to say was they stuck an eye on it. But... Uh, <laughs> That's no, good news. Good news. And I'm, is, yeah. you know, I'm stunned that they'd sorted it out so fast. That was amazing. <laughs> it's not bad, is it? No, it's pretty it's good. Bad. Pretty good. <laughs> You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree, and governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Roger, you're live here also. Space nuts. Now, uh, Fred, we're going to look at um, something that, uh, well, if, if you say the word, people are going to go, uh huh? And the word is astroblem, or astrobleem as it is written, but we think it's a blem. Um, this has got something to do with some core drilling that's been going on, and they've been digging up rocks and looking at them, and uh, they have found one of these things, I assume. Indeed, that's right. So um, the word itself, uh, you get the clue from uh, from other words. Astroblem or astroblem, as it as it looks to us. I, I'm, I'm not 
you know, I think you pronounce it as as you like, really. Mm. Depends where, which school you went to, probably. Um, it means literally, well, astro is to do with stars, so star. And a blem it is a scar. It's, a, it's like a blemish. That's where the word blemish comes from. So an astro blem is a star scar. And it, it actually basically just means whatever's left by something that's hit the Earth. And we're now talking about once again, asteroids or meteorites. Um, uh, so if you've got uh, an asteroid that comes in, hits the Earth and alters its geology, then the resulting geological features are called astroblems. Ah. So that's what this is. It's all pretty boring, um, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it? When it comes to the crunch, most things are, Andrew. No, that's not true. No, we, not uh, there's nobody could say that what we do is boring. Um, well, they could, but... <laughs> I do, I do remember one of um, the first book I wrote. One of the reviews said, "This is as exciting as watching paint dry." Oh, no. Is that where that phrase came from? Oh dear! <laughs> yeah. So I thought, well, okay, never mind. Um, uh, but I don't think I don't think that's all right. Generally, is particularly boring. No, I, I read a review about my book recently, and they said, "Gee, should have got a, a better proofreader." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's. That's a fair criticism. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I'll <laughs> no, it's that. all right. No, it's not. So um, this is to do uh, actually. The, the, look, look, let me just uh, step back a minute. Uh, so an astroblem covers everything from, you know, just a small uh, dip in the ground to something the size of the Pixelump crater that we've talked about a lot, which is where the the 12 kilometer or 15 kilometer diameter asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs hit in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, that you could call an astroblem, but we usually would call it a crater. Mm. But uh, the astroblem that's causing attention at the moment is a rather special one. It's in France. It's in a place called Rochechouart. Well, Rochechouart is probably the way the locals pronounce it, um, which is in central France. It's a little town that has um, basically this uh, this unusual rock feature and uh, which we now know is basically caused by uh, uh, the impact of an asteroid, a, a small asteroid, big enough to do damage. But it's very old. It's much, much older than the one that wiped out the dinosaurs. That, oh. if you remember, was 66 million years ago. This one's more than 200 million years ago. And actually, um, it, it's it's been known for well over 100 years, probably more like 150 years, to have a sort of extraterrestrial origin, uh, or, or at least to be something special. Yeah. I think it's probably more recently than that. Uh, and so um, it's been a magnet for, uh, for scientists, geologists, um, exobiologists, astrobiologists, the people who look at signs of life on, in, from space, paleontologists, people who look at fossils and things. And, and basically, they've, um, they've come to this place because... The the um, the remnants, the geological evidence is very close to the surface. That's mm. why it's so special. Um, it's it's uh, basically, uh, you know, you don't have to dig uh, it's to the bottom of the Gulf the of, ground. Me right. of Mexico, for example. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. I think they only went down about fourteen hundred meters, but it's still a long way. Yeah. Uh, when they when the Myrtle uh, um, dr drilling rig drilled into the Gulf of Mexico, but with this one in Rochua, you don't need to. You just kind of <laughs> hit hit kick, the rock with the a hammer dirt off and the top. The, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so they've so, been doing some core drilling. That's uh, indeed on, the on case this, on this outcrop. What, did, did they find anything? Uh, 
Well, I think that's um, what, uh, you know, what the story really leads to. Uh, there is, uh, the, 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 they clearly have been drilling. We've got some nice photographs of core samples and things of that sort. Uh, but what's happening now is that that is all, uh, that is all being analysed. So, for example, uh, you've got people there, um, basically meteor, meteoritic specialists, who are trying to get the details of how, and, and these are chemical details largely, you know, from the analysis of the rock, uh, of how meteorites like this form and uh, how they evolve in space. Because we think that um, asteroids in particular are really the leftover debris of the formation of the solar system. Mm. So there's all, all that sort of thing. And then there are, the, the, there are people looking, the astrobiologists are looking for evidence of there being sort of organic materials that have come in on this space rock because some people think that the organic materials, these are the carbon-containing compounds, some of them co quite complex, actually um, seeded life on Earth. If you've got these, uh, you know, these complex molecules that are prerequisites for life and they're dumped on Earth by asteroids, uh, well, that might be what kicked off life here. We don't know the answer to that, but this, this is the kind of work that scientists, scientists are doing. And, and there's, um, you know, there's all sorts of other scientific work going on, like how much of the life in the surrounding area was destroyed by this impact, because yeah. it, it probably... Yeah, it probably damaged the, the, the environment for, well, more than 100 kilometres all around, probably more like, you know, two or 300 kilometres. This, this is a one kilometre sized object, which is a big one. It's big enough to do uh, at least nationwide damage and probably continent-wide damage as well. Wow, so amazing. an interesting story. Uh, and, and, and what's exciting about it is, as I said, it's this thing's right on the surface. So people are talking about setting up open-air laboratories above it and things of that sort. It's great stuff. Yeah, indeed. And so there'll be more to learn and we may be able to talk about that down the track so uh, i think so yeah and i think um the um you know the the it's almost a, a sort of public uh, service that they're doing here because they're doing these they're, they're drilling the rock cores and then they're making available to scientists everywhere uh, rather than keeping it all to themselves and doing the analysis they're basically putting putting them out to research groups all around the world so we might in the, it's going to be probably a couple of years but we might get some really interesting results from this fascinating okay we'll watch with interest uh, you're sure. with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson, and uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, we're going to look at uh, the issue of animals in space. Now, we're, we can go back 60 years, and we've just recently passed the 60th anniversary of the launch of Laika, which was a Siberian husky that the Russians put into space. It did a lap of the Earth, and then the batteries ran out, and, well, you know... Laika was no more. Uh, and and we have since been sending chimps and rats and mice and even ants and bees and all sorts of other critters into space. Um, we seem to have a need to do this. There are, there are good reasons to. Uh, early on it was because of the risk and, you know, you didn't want to send a person up, so you, you sent a dog. Um, but it is still a rather fascinating part of the entire space race concept, isn't it? That's right. And of course, it's controversial as well, yes, because indeed. we live in an era now where animal, um, animal life is much more valued than perhaps it was back then in the early days of the of the space age. But but it has to be said, Andrew, at the outset, that um, it's because animals were sent into space, it saved probably 
you know, dozens of human lives um, because of what was learned by uh, flying animals in space. Mm. Um, it would have been probably fairly, you know, a humanitarian crime uh, to do the same with humans uh, because we, uh, we we really didn't know what uh, what would happen to people when they went into space in the early days. Nowadays, we take it completely for granted. We've got the, the guys on the space station. We've got uh, a lot of medical research that goes on. But in the early days, nobody knew whether you it would be instant death from the radiation. And so it was uh, very much in the post-war period. And I think the earliest one flight with animals was something like 1947. Uh, this very early on, they they used um, animals to to just to, to to act as basically as canaries, like the like the coal mines. You know, uh, the canary in the coal mine dies when you've got uh, methane or whatever, uh, and warns people that you're in a poisonous environment. I suppose the same thing was true with uh, with um, uh, basically uh, with, with with animal life in space to check whether we would survive. Uh, in fact, the first time animals were sent, they were fruit flies. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. And it was um, 1947, as I said. Uh, it was basically uh, up to a height of about 100 kilometers in uh, what was what was actually then the standard way of doing space experiments. It was a, basically a, a, a Nazi V2 rocket that didn't make it in, as, a, as a missile. Uh, the V2, of course, the, the, the vengeance weapon that Hitler launched right at the end of the Second World War. Mm. Uh, a lot of them were unused uh, and uh, formed the basis of uh, experiments that were carried on uh, post-war by the Allies, um, um, principally in, in America. So that experiment, first um, rockets sent up to 100 kilometers fruit flies. Uh, and then uh, there were actually a, a lot of monkeys were sent um, uh, in the in the you know in the in the 50s nasa didn't come into being until 1958 so nasa didn't exist until um until after the Leica experiment but yes in in the in the wake uh, very quickly after the first successful uh um, orbiting satellite which was sputnik one in october uh, 1957 uh, within within a couple of weeks of that, or Sputnik 2 had been launched, which had a capsule containing this dog, Laika, which was um, in fact a stray. Yes, a stray so I believe. Up from the from the streets oh, of Oh, here's Moscow. a dog. He'll do, mate. <laughs> yeah, except it, except it was a she. <laughs> oh, right. And and there's a reason why they preferred uh, female dogs, and that's because they don't have to lift their leg to pee, so you can put them in a smaller space. Oh, in the, seriously? In the capsule. That's right. Um, and that came from people who worked on that. There's a, actually a, let me see if I can find it. Yes, um, a, a Russian biologist whose name uh, is, uh, I, and I think she's still she's still around, Adilia Kotovskaya. Adilia Kotovskaya. She helped to train Laika, and she said. Uh, those nine orbits of Earth made Laika the world's first cosmonaut, Fantastic. sacrificed for the safe, sake of success of future yeah, it's a, space missions. It's a great achievement with a very, very tragic ending because, uh, well, I've read stories that suggest that the life support batteries ran out and that's why Laika died, but there are other stories that suggest that it was uh, an issue of overheating in the capsule. I don't know which one to believe. I, I, I've heard the overheating one as well. I think the basically the... Um, uh, the, the, you know the the, the mechanics of, of making an environment suitable for a living organism 
were totally in their infancy in 1957. Uh, so um, it's not surprising that the air conditioning failed uh, and Leica overheated and died. Um, I actually am not sure um, if that hadn't happened, whether Leica would have been able to be recovered anyway. I don't know what the re-entry, you know, the re-entry um, uh, setup was for this for this spacecraft. Mm. Uh, but yeah, very interesting stuff. Uh, I. It wasn't the first dog that they'd sent into space, though. Um, in August 1960, a couple of a couple of dogs actually that did come back alive uh, flew on what's called a suborbital uh, flight. They they went up and then down again. Uh, they they were um, they they were successful. Uh, yeah, very interesting. Uh, 1968. This is well into the space age. There was a spacecraft sent by the Soviet Union to orbit the moon that apparently carried tortoises, among other things. So you know, <laughs> it seems a bit strange to put some of the slowest animals. Well, but, they, they carry now, their own helmets, so I suppose that was you know logical. Well, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Indeed, they do. They just tuck their heads in. I mean, now we're in a we're in a an era where you would you would not. Uh, you would not do it. Um, the the big question, I guess, is that we are really on the verge within the next perhaps two decades of sending humans to Mars. Mm. And I suppose the question then is, well, do you want to do it with a primate or or a, an animal that could could help us understand what the effect on humans will be? That's an ethical question that has yet to be answered because the the climate now is one that would really. Uh, you know that 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 would would actually dictate against that. Uh, there's a there's a science uh, an animal rights group called uh, PETA or PETA, yeah. and their science policy advisor is basically uh, you know is an advocate for for not doing that. Uh, she says animals aren't astronauts, and unlike human volunteers, can't give their consent to being the subjects of experiments or to risking their lives on a frightening mission into the un unknown. So yeah, um, that's that said, they also can't give their consent to be uh, consent to be slaughtered and eaten. So uh, exactly, where do you draw yeah, the line? Yeah, this, you know, we, this is an, an area that, of course, is very, very, it, it's a very, very messy area, uh, one that whether the, the ethics are uh, ill-defined. Ill and I, I, I'm absolutely with you on that uh, comment. Uh, so uh, at least we know there are no more primate tests because uh, NASA has already said that it will not do that, as has the European Space Agency uh, Actually, that's not true. There are apparently, sorry, I was going to say that's not true. In Russia, we think that the, but there might still be plans to, to use experiments with primates uh, in Russia, but we don't really know too much about that. Mm. Uh, so it is, it's, it, you know, NASA has, has uh, said that, um, as I said a, a few minutes ago, if you didn't have animal testing in the early days of spaceflight, there could have been big losses of human life. But NASA has gone on to say these animals performed a service to their respective countries that no human could or would have performed. They gave their lives in their service in the name of technological advancement, paving the way for humanities for humanity's many forays into space. Now, I, uh, I just wonder, I'm just thinking, and it's just popped into my head, but is there a monument for Leica? Did they? I believe there is. Yeah, I thought I think there was. There is. That's right, yes. Yes, I'm not sure where it is, but I uh, mm. can imagine. I'm, I'm going to say Russia. I um, would guess it is, and maybe even Moscow. And the first chimpanzee in space was named Ham. 
That's right, Ham, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he, I think he flew on a Mercury capsule, which was the one that was the, the, the first American uh, manned capsule. I think Ham flew in, uh, in, in a, one of the early Mercury. Pretty ones. sure he came back. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. And, and, of course, we still are sending animals into space um, for experimental purposes. On the space uh, station, yeah. we, we once discussed an experiment where they sent up spiders to see how they'd react to zero-G while spinning webs or something to that effect, which I believe was an idea of Australian, of Australian school students, unless I'm crossing my wires. But, um, yeah, so we're still doing it, but for more positive purposes. Maybe so. Yeah, it's it's a tricky issue. It is indeed. Yeah. All right. Fred, as always, uh, interesting, fascinating, exciting and fun. Thank you so much. A great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk again and we'll speak again soon. We will indeed. That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And don't forget to send us your questions via Facebook. Uh, we love to hear from you. Just look up space, uh, space Nuts in your Facebook search engine and don't forget to like us. You don't have to like us, just like us. If that makes any sense. <laughs> and um, tell your friends about us, uh, and uh, we will get together again uh, in the not-too-distant future, maybe a light year or more. That's not time anyway. Uh, and catch you again on the podcast known as Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Tights.com.